0: Thank you, Pastor Tom. You're welcome. Yeah, let's oh, applaud that. Thank you. <laughs> it's not easy to get through all that information. And I also appreciate Pastor Tom's focus on not just giving us details like a bulletin board, but giving us vision for why we do what we do. It's so important to be reminded of that because um, as God's people in God's church, you can often be busy and you just think you're doing the right things, but you don't really Have a great handle on why. And um, that's been one of the pillars that we've strived for a lot here at Faith over the years is not to make a busy church, but make an effective church. And so um, it's really important that we know our own limits and hear where the voice of the Lord is leading us instead of just doing everything that sounds like a good idea to us. So thanks again for all of that. And I appreciate all of you participating in the ways that the Lord's leading you as well. Um, Before we get into 1 Peter 5, we're getting to where we're about ready to wrap up the the letter um, from Peter um, in a couple of messages. And so before we get into 1 Peter 5, I wanted to just take a second to cover a couple of things. First is I want to thank Tim Valentine for speaking to us last week. Um, Tim is um, joining our elder team. Uh, Lord willing and by the uh, vote of the congregation when the time is right. Uh, so he'd be in a pattern we're calling an elder in training, which is funny to say about a guy with uh, Tim's experience and knowledge and heart and, and mission. Um, we've known Tim for a real long time and uh even before he went to kosovo with his wife karen to uh to to be church assistant church planting type um missionaries there uh we've known that tim has a great heart for the lord jesus christ and and he and he's got a calling to share the gospel as was made pretty clear last week and uh the things that he just has off top of his head and how little he looked at notes i was like man i got to get me some of that and uh, a little bit of passion. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. We've been trying to get Tim to come out of his shell a little bit. Feel like our 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 efforts are finally paying off. Um, but really, that's what we've always appreciated about Tim is that he's just just below the surface of his skin boils this undying passion to see the lost come to Christ. And so uh, I really appreciate Tim taking the time and preaching to us last week and. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in church, I was, I was much more used to those kind of, those preachers that hit you between the eyes. And, uh, I used to, in Bible college and in some of my training, I used to have people tell you, if you haven't made the people mad, you haven't done your job. So, so I'm kind of familiar with that, that tone and that presentation. I was wondering if you, all of you were, familiar with it as well, but we need to hear the bold proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially today where it's so hard to hear. And so uh, again, I really appreciate him being sensitive and faithful to the Lord's leading in his life uh, and his, uh, his participation with our team, which is what we're going to talk about a lot this morning out of First Peter 5. Again, before I get there, and the anticipation, what buildup, right? Uh, I just want to say that last week we had mentioned that we have voter guides out in the entryway to get us ready for this election season. And Pastor Tom just announced that we'll be having a prayer meeting tonight to pray about um, all things election and all that stuff. Um, so there's a lot I could say. There's a lot that is being said, and there's a lot that I won't say. Um, but let me at least say this. Um, the absence of political conversation in at faith... Uh, is not um, a, 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 a dismissal of the reality of what we live in i 'm not uh, sticking my head in the sand we 're not ducking our responsibilities and things here 's the reason why we don 't talk about uh, what 's swirling out there in the political world a whole lot here. Uh, for one is because um, we believe that you are everywhere you go you are bombarded with political opinion. And, uh, we believe that you are probably not being um, bombarded with gospel thought everywhere you go, right? That's not available to you as much as you would like it to be in the places that you go. The biggest topic is what's going to happen with this election or those kinds of things. And we believe that just from a retreat perspective, having a place to come to have life poured into you, spoken into you to build you up for the kingdom that will always endure, not the one that will just trade hands every four to eight years you know and and uh, it's been my conviction that uh while the evangelical church does participate and and rightfully should because of being good stewards of the great nation the Lord's given us is that the evangelical church often gets their emotions and their energies hijacked by a political process it is important for us to engage it is important for us to know what we need to know it is important for us to take our our responsibility to lead the future of this country. However, we don't have to sound like everybody. I think of like uh, what Paul says, and we share this often at funerals when we come together. Sorry for the analogy, the com- comparison from politics to funerals, but uh, maybe it's a Freudian slip. Anyway, um, we often say at funerals, uh, Paul, we quote Paul, where he says, We don't mourn as those who have no hope. And I'm thinking that Paul's words are very appropriate for us anticipating whatever could happen in early November is that we as God's people aren't getting yanked around by whatever happens on November 3rd. And so uh, it is our mission here at faith to build the kingdom of God. And with the gospel, we will address the issues that the Bible addresses. We will do it boldly. We will pay the price. We'll do all those things, but we don't have to get all weighed down with the same pressures and burdens that the rest of the world is facing in this endless political debate cycle. So please take that for what it's worth. I, I felt like we should probably say something about it because if we don't say anything, then it could be interpreted all kinds of ways. Um, and I've asked, I've asked some of our, um, leadership team to be working on a position for the future on these kinds of things, because it's so important for you to know where we stand and to uh, be able to weigh in on that. So, um, that is not the content of first Peter five. I'm sure it relates to it in some way, shape or form, but we're going to switch gears here and just get right into the context of our scripture this morning. There is a proverb, not a biblical proverb, but probably I think I've heard as a Chinese proverb that says he who thinks he leads with nobody behind him is only taking a walk. And I think that's very, very important for us to stop and think about when we think of leadership, which is what Peter is going to address in chapter five. Is leadership what we make it out to be is leadership, what we expect it to be, or is it something deeper? If everything truly does, I'm not sure if it truly does, but if everything truly rises and falls on leadership, if it's not hundred percent, it's at least in the 90 percentile. I think if everything rises and falls on leadership, how should we discern what leadership should look like in the house of God? This matters to Peter because he's been encouraging the flock, which is a word he's uh, a word he's going to use for us. And we're going to be talking a lot about he's going to encourage the flock to follow the leader to in difficult times and chaotic situations. Remember, we use the analogy. Listen to the voice of the coach. And pay attention. Now, in our application here, when I say leader, I'm going to try as often as I can to use the word leaders plural, because this isn't on one person. Thankfully. It is my conviction, and it has been our practice, especially in the last 12 months, that any time and material that we can invest in the development of a broad leadership structure. Within the church, it will pay huge dividends for all of us for the years to come. In other words, if we get leadership right, even if it's clunky along the way, even if it's a little bit ugly, even if it's learning to adapt to all the weird things that COVID has developed, if we if we spend the time and don't take our eyes off that ball, eventually as the dust settles, what will benefit the health of the church is strong, stable, consistent, and humble leadership. We know that the leader doesn't do everything that would be poor leadership, but the leadership does impact. Everything. It sets the tone. It, it addresses the environment in which you find yourself in. And so it matters to you and it should matter to the leaders. So as we look at the scripture this morning, this isn't a poster of saying this is everything faith is good at. This is actually quite convicting and it's been a very difficult week for me. Feel bad for me. It's been a very difficult week for me to look in the mirror a bit as I'm seeing what Peter is laying out for the criteria of the, oh, I just said it like a mainer. Did you hear that? Criteria i 'm from here. I can get away with picking on you. Criteria uh, for church leadership. so let's transition a bit into the text. the biblical principles of leadership. Are exclusively focused on a couple of things that we wouldn't normally see coming when you and I think leader, we usually think of it as being a positive. We say leader equals something like uh, somebody who's smart or a real leader is somebody who is effective or something like that. But the scripture says that real leadership is built on character and conduct, which are things you and I can control. In other words, the scripture doesn't highlight those that were born leaders as saying that's what the church should desire and emulate and all that kind of stuff. The example of a born leader in scripture, one of the examples is someone named Saul. And the the nation at the time of Israel didn't want to just follow God as their leader. So they said, we want like the prototypical leader. We want the tall, handsome, sharp thinker, all these kinds of, we want a leader like that so we can brag about him to the surrounding nations basically to make us look better. So God gives them what they want. He gives them the guy that on the externals looks the part and plays the part. And he fails in his leadership and does great damage to the nation. So it's in the Bible. It's just not set up as a positive example. Peter is going to hit leadership due to the unsettled nature that the flock is feeling. The sheep are spread about, we call them the diaspora early on in the letter. And so because of that, he wants to strengthen. He's not just saying as he's closing the letter, well, who did I forget? Oh, I forgot to talk to the elders. Let me include this. This is all part of. The instruction for taking matters seriously as the days got stranger and more difficult for Peter's readers. So let's go to chapter five and we'll just cover four verses this morning as long as well as a bunch of other supporting ones. But for Peter, we'll stay in the first four verses. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker In the glory that is going to be revealed, what is he exhorting them to do? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray about this before we get started. Lord God, I just want to thank you for providing the text. Lord, thank you for shepherding us so well that you've given us the nourishment and the care by giving us your word. I pray, Lord, that our ears would be open to it. I pray that my mouth would be faithful to it. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be receptive to following it and and that we would submit to what you have for us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you've bestowed upon this church. Thank you for the faithfulness of your people who have endured and weathered such strange uh, shifts and all of the things that are put before them. And I just pray, God, that we continue to move forward united under these important principles, knowing that what we're building is lasting longer and it has been bigger than even what we've seen in America. So, God, we pray that we would continue to be faithful to you and to your calling. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter has given us a couple of images to chew on a little bit. He's talking about sheep and shepherds. And this is not something that is common for most of us. Some of you have some experience with sheep and and perhaps even some taste of shepherding. But most of us are not really that familiar with the concept that wasn't the mascot of our football team. You know, those of you that played in Waterville weren't the Waterville sheep or the Winslow lambs or Or anything like that. The sheep aren't very intimidating. They're not fierce creatures. They're not the kind of of animal like an eagle or a lion that will instill fear in your enemy. So they're not really that intimidating. They're not that powerful. Instead, they're extremely helpless. They're dependent on their leadership. And they constantly wander away. We know the comparisons given to us in Isaiah where he says, All we like sheep. Have done what? We've gone astray. Everyone has turned to their own way. So when the Bible makes a comparison of sheep, it's in the negative. But when the Bible makes a comparison of the shepherd, it's in the positive. Even in our hymns, we sing, okay, this is how sheepy we are. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love because sheep will not naturally find their way to where they're supposed to go. They need to be shown the way they need that leadership. It's not in their DNA. It's not in their nature to find their own way. They're a following creature. So that's a little bit about sheep, certainly not a deep dive. But then we have shepherds on the other hand. and Shepherds are spoken up very highly in the scriptures. Even Jesus himself is, is given to us as the great shepherd. We know that he protects, he leads, he provides, he does all the things that a shepherd sh- should do. And so it's a very positive in the scripture. But, but for them, societally, they weren't that welcomed at all the parties. I mean, imagine the best conversation practice you have is with flocks of sheep. You go to those parties smelling like your work. You're not making a killing, even though sheep were very valuable in that day and all that sort of stuff. So shepherds were a bit of an outcast. They were the odd ducks. They weren't really the, the ones where most people are like, when I get older, that's what I'm going to do. The shepherding concept in society, eh, not such a big deal. But to the Lord and how it was shared in the scripture, extremely important for us. And so Peter is adding to that chorus of of figuring out why the Lord cares so much about shepherding. You're going to see three names in this passage. When we read this out, he's referring to elders. He says as a fellow elder. He says also as an overseer, which is your translation may also also say bishop. So you'll see that in there. Bishop is for overseer. And then, of course, shepherd. So elder is where, just in case you need to know, if you say, I don't know the difference in all these churches, why are some people Presbyterians and some people evangelical frees and that kind of thing? Some of the names of those denominations come from interpreted words from the scriptures. So Presbyterian, for instance, is comes from the Greek word that gave us elder. So you will know then if you go to a Presbyterian church, they're going to have a heavy emphasis on the eldership of the church. That's just going to be part and parcel with their government and their DNA. If you go to an Episcopal church, for instance, they got that word from where we got overseer or bishop. And so those things are tied there. So um, there's just a little bit of insight into how those words are used. But all three of those words in our passage talking about the same person. You've got an elder who is emphasizing their most likely their age and their maturity. Now we know. Not everybody as they get older grows up, right? Age doesn't necessarily make you wiser, but it certainly does contribute to the likelihood that you and I, the older we get, we've learned some things. So that's why most of the time, even though elders aren't exclusively about age, that's why most of the time when you see churches pick elders, they've been down the road a piece. And sometimes we're able to break that mold. Sometimes we're able to find someone younger who's ready to be developed, who's demonstrate some of those things. And we move in that direction because we want younger voices at the table as well. But for the most part, elder is referring to somebody's maturity, which of course is impacted by um, their length of years and their experiences. The overseer though, is getting to what he actually does. What's in his care. The responsibility he has as a bishop it's how do you, have you heard of people called Bishop? And if, I don't know if you've seen, sometimes it's like the TV preachers, they got the awesome robes and they walk around with the microphone and they're the Bishop. And I was like, man, that's a really cool title. I'm just throwing that out there in case you're interested, giving me a new title. I'll take it. Wear the cool robe, the Bishop Brent small. Anyway, you, you haven't seen these people I'm talking about, I guess. <laughs> Eddie Long was the guy I'm remembering from the early two. the Bishop Eddie Long. And he was like, oh, cool. And anyway, Bishop, don't give me any new titles. I don't need them. So we've got elder, which is addressing maturity. Overseer or Bishop is, and I'm just doing these things. So you remember them, even if I have to be the dork, the overseer is addressing the responsibility, but the shepherd is addressing the ministry that that elder, that overseer is called to. And there's a whole list of qualifications or responsibilities that come with that. And that's what Peter is laying out for us. he's only focusing on a a few aspects. Paul really rounds this out in first Timothy and he gives us a much weightier list, which we'll look at in a little bit. But Peter is just going to emphasize a few things. And I share these things with you, not as some advertisement that we've got this figured out here at faith, but for mutual accountability. So you say, "Okay, that's what we're supposed to be looking for. That's the expectation we're supposed to have. That's the standard we're supposed to set and saying things in public makes you accountable to it. So that's part of the reason for going into this. Peter has other reasons for sharing it with us. So I'm going to pull out of this. I think the few things that Peter is addressing and why he's even bringing this up. The first is I'm going to refer to the elder or the shepherd or the overseer as an under shepherd to emphasize the point of the name chief shepherd that he gives us later. The first thing I think Peter is getting at here is that under shepherds must know their savior. Peter is emphasizing the relationship that each of us needs to have personally with Jesus Christ, that this isn't a professional distancing where it says, well, I know the right things to say. You guys need to go out and do it. Instead, Peter starts off very, very humbly. I think it's important when we're reading our Bible to know a little bit about the background or the emphasis of the author. Why is he saying what he's saying? And Peter starts off by saying as a fellow elder. He, he, he was famous by now, at least in the church circles, he could name drop Jesus on everything. He could be like, oh, that's right. I remember that time we were around the fire and Jesus said that, or, you know, what his favorite drink was whenever we'd get the s'mores and, you know, and you could say anything and mention the name of Jesus. And people would be like, yeah, Peter, we get it. You knew him personally. You walked around with him for three and a half years. We understand. We understand. Peter does address it from a personal perspective, but not in a glowing way. He starts off by saying, as a fellow person who's rolling up their sleeves, who's getting the smell of the sheep on him, who's who's dealing with all the things that sheep present as a fellow worker of the gospel. I come to you. I beseech you. I urge you is what he's saying. So he does name drop. He says, yeah, I was there. I had a front row seat. I was a witness of the sufferings of Jesus. And we've talked about Peter's front row seat a lot, that it was shameful for him. You'd almost think he'd want to not keep bringing it up because every time their minds go back to the fact that he was there, they know he had egg on his face. They know that he didn't, he didn't lead well in that moment. Instead, he cowered to fear. So he says, I am a witness of the sufferings of Jesus, but... Here's the butt that is full of all the grace that Peter is one of the best in the scriptures of uh, exemplifying for us. He says, but I am also a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Now, we can't camp on this a lot, and we have in the past. But understand something here that when Peter says, um, I know what I'm talking about, he's not saying from a place of authority in the, in the showy sense. His authority comes from having failed and having been restored by Jesus Christ. Remember last week we said that the gospel of grace does not hold us to our worst moment or curse us by our worst decision. Peter is a walking example of how covering, how freeing, how forgiving that grace really is. So from a personal standpoint, the under shepherd in the church or the under shepherds, need a daily dose of the same gospel that they preach to you. I don't have enough gospel to be set for the rest of my life. Practically speaking, positionally speaking, I've been saved once for all I'm set. But practically speaking, every day I need an arresting of the gospel over my heart, over my motives, over my actions, over my obsessions, any of those things, just as you do. And if I am not wrestling with that, if I'm not receiving that, if if I'm not being made new by that gospel of grace, you'll figure it out. You'll start to see it. The leader needs a daily dose of the gospel, and he also needs God to be as relevant to him as he expects for his people there's this nagging thing called a conscience. And when you're telling people what they need to know, or what they need to hear and the whole time, your conscience is like, when are you going to lean on this? When are you going to try that? The shepherd, the under shepherd needs to have God be as relevant to him. I, I sometimes wonder whenever we say things like all you need is Jesus. And Jesus is the answer to whatever the problem is. And I go, do we know that for sure? Or is that just really easy to say? And I catch myself sometimes, not all the time, but I catch myself sometimes before I give hope to somebody else. It's like this quick inventory. Do you really believe what you're about to say? Has that hope been made personal to you? If the shepherd isn't staying nourished, he'll be of no use to the sheep. The sheep will pick it up. Sheep will sense that there's some timidity there and the direction's a little off and we're not sure where we're going or why we're here. So it's very, very important, as Peter would say, for the leaders... For the under shepherds to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Secondly, I would say that the under shepherds must know their calling. First point was about relationship. This is more about practical gifting. And and a, and a shepherd needs to be very, very acquainted with this thing that we call a calling of God on someone's life. And it shows up in all different kinds of ways. Some, some want to make it really mystical. And for some, it's a very profound experience for some of us. It's just a moving in a direction that you can't really shake. It's just hard to define what a calling feels like or looks like, but when it's there, you know, it is, it'll be tested. It'll be challenged. It'll be, um, thwarted from time to time. But for the most part, when you have that calling, you see it and others can see it in you. And so there's a gifting that comes with the presence of the Holy Spirit, particularly for the under shepherd. He's got two responsibilities as far as Peter's concerned. He needs to feed the flock and he needs to lead the flock. Let's revisit verse two. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I love the accountability in that tiny little phrase. We won't camp on it long, but he says, shepherd the flock that you have in your presence which is really difficult to stay focused on just the people that you have in a social media day and age, in an overly um, uh, regurgitated information age, all this kind of stuff. It's hard to just narrow the focus on care about the ones God's given you to care about. Don't try to solve everyone else's problems. Don't try to get tangled up in all their endeavors and all their dramas and dilemma, dilemmas. I almost did the Mainer thing again. I'm going to go have some soda after this. <laughs> Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. How? This is where Peter clarifies exercising oversight. That's the bishop. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You know, Jesus uh, confronted Peter towards the end of in this particular recording. I'm thinking of as the end of John, John chapter one. And Jesus confronts Peter and he says, um, Peter, do you love me? Of course, Peter is, you know who Peter is, right? He's going to be the Mr. I'm always going to answer yes, and I'm your man ready to go. So he says, yes, I I love you. Jesus says again, so Peter, do you love me? Third time, Peter. Do you love me? And Peter's exasperation starting to grow and his. I'm sure his brain's getting a little split by like, I want to answer him right. But I also want to say, why are you challenging me on this? Do I not demonstrate this every day? I've left everything to follow you. I stick my foot in my mouth daily for you. How do you not know already? And so Jesus used his answer of yes, yes, yes. Each time to lay out what mattered the most to Jesus as he was leaving the church, his flock in Peter's care. Feed my sheep then. If you love me, make sure they're fed. He didn't say anything else in answer to that question. Other than feed my sheep, this is of primary importance to Jesus. The shepherd knows where the food is. They know where the grass is greener and they know where where there's there's uh, there's trouble around the corner. And so they're going to make sure he stay here. We haven't we haven't divested ourselves of all of these um, uh, resources that we have. So we're going to stay here until it's gone or now it's time to move because there's a threat coming over the hill the shepherd knows these things and also knows how much the sheep can handle what's good for their diet what they're ready for paul told timothy as he was constantly instructing this young man who was under his care in first timothy and second timothy he would give him instructions on how to shepherd well and in second timothy 2 he says do your do your best to present yourself to god as one approved A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So Paul is saying there's a wrong way to handle the scriptures. There's a wrong way to deliver what the sheep need for nourishment. If you don't hand it to them in a way that they can actually feed on, you're doing it the wrong way. That's what Paul is saying. Peter is giving us this comparison list after he said, shepherd the flock among you. He says, exercising oversight. How there's a way to do it, way not to do it. He says, don't do it under compulsion. In other words, don't have leaders in your church that you had to twist their arm because no one else would take the job or somebody who feels obligated just because, well, you know, God said I have to kind of like the Jonah thing where it's like, I don't want to go tell these people how to find freedom, but he's making me or else he'll swallow me up in another fish. So not out of compulsion, but willingly. And there's a fine line, isn't there, between somebody who's reluctant to be the leader because they don't want to be, you know, the person in charge. And then also the person who really wants to be the leader, but then you don't want him to have ulterior motives. Why are you so eager to lead? So Peter gives a little bit of a caution. He says, not for gain, but eagerly. And gain specifically in this is talking about monetary gain. Apparently there was as much a problem back then of uh, preachers or elders or something seeing an opportunity to fleece the flock. Really to be able to say, oh, those Christians, they're gullible, they're generous, they're faithful. They'll give and give and give and they won't ask a lot of questions as to where it's going and all that stuff. So apparently the abuse of that financial aspect of ministry was as prevalent then as it is now. There's a million examples we can share of how that's being abused now. So he says, look for those who aren't seeking gain, but I think it can go even bigger than money. Because a lot of times, I mean, look, it's like, you know, every week you get a built-in audience. Every week, you know, you've got an opportunity to say the things that are on your mind. This is what matters to me the most. And I get to spew it and you guys, because you're faithful, you're going to listen. So there's a gain that comes from that. There's an attention factor. There's power trips. There's ego. There's all that sort of stuff. And so it's not just a financial gain. That's the temptation for the would be leader. And the church needs to be looking out for that. We don't necessarily want the person or the people that we have to twist their arm. But we also don't want that person who says, give me a chance because I'm dying to lead. There's a wisdom balance there. That's one of the. The uh, things that I've appreciated so much about um, the leadership team I serve with and some of the names that you don't know that you'll get to know in the next few months and things like that. But even the team that's existed and what's in place is that when we're around a table and right now it's a pretty big group of guys. And uh, when we're around the table, there just aren't any, there aren't any of the guys there that are eager to be heard. And I think it's a very rare thing and it's a great blessing to the church of Jesus Christ because so many elder boards and churches are made up of egotists and people that have an opinion or they're the biggest giver or there's some other human drive that says, I deserve a seat at the table. You need to make me in charge. And what we find so many times with our guys is that you have to ask them for their very valued and important opinion. Even with all their skill and experience, they're not the first to be heard. And I think that's a great quality, something the Lord's been uh, blessed us with finding. So Peter is saying that the motivation of the leader is extremely important and one that requires time to sift through and find out why would you want to lead this flock? What's in it for you? And this idea of calling is something that becomes even more important because calling driven leaders are able to weather the storms of the job or the situations because they're in it for a higher purpose than what they can get out of it. You can see it quickly. If somebody is in it for a certain thing and that that rug gets pulled out from underneath them and they say, I'm moving on, I'm done. You start to realize it wasn't because they were there for a calling. It was there because they saw some payoff and it's now no longer being realized. These are all the cautions or the guardrails that, that Peter is putting out saying, if you're looking for someone to lead, look for someone who's willing and struggling to feed you. So verse three, he says, not someone who's domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. You see the opposite there, domineering, being in charge, being the boss, being in, I'm going to tell you because I'm on that power trip. He said, instead, if you're willing to be an example, Which, if you think about what we've been preaching about in Peter with suffering and submission and all that stuff, sounds a lot like Psalm 23, which is, of course, one of the most famous passages of Scripture we hear quite often. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus is given to us as the perfect shepherd, flawless, knows everything we need, and the good shepherd knows that you don't drive the sheep to their destination, you lead them there. That's where example comes in. As a shepherd grows, so grows the sheep. The example is lofty on purpose, it's intimidating. And it's not to be taken lightly. As we said, Paul really gives a pretty severe list of what the leader is to be about. And so we're going to look at that together. We don't have time to really break it down, but I think it's pretty sobering to look at. And first Timothy three verses one through six, he says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which is what class a starts with a B Bishop. bishop. All right. The Bishop. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or new to the faith, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, I would love to spend the time to break down each of these phrases. They probably have instigated a few questions in your mind. But as you can tell, Paul has a pretty steep list of the types of people that would be qualified to lead the flock of God. The reason being is as you see all of those things play out, they balance one another out and they remove this ego, this kind of lead by force, lead by lead by might, lead by cool, lead by any of those things. And instead it starts to become about the spirit of God moving in a place as opposed to the outward skill or the impressive abilities of the leader. He's not going to be the best in all of these areas. God's leader isn't going to nail every one of these all the time. I'm constantly in our leader's uh, settings. I'm always intrigued by how some people can just pray like they've got the ear of God just right down to their mouth and they speak right. And I say, man, I wish I prayed like that. Or I'm around some of our guys and what they're able to spit out for Bible and everything. I'm thinking, man, if I had some of that, that would help me in my day job a lot. They really know their Bible. Or you see some people 's marriages that seem a little bit more on the effortless side, you know their relationship is strong, and it 's not perfect, but it 's certainly nowhere near the heartache and the hardships that some people have, and you just go, "Man, how do they do that?" or their parenting falls into place, they 're really good at that, or they 're promoted at their job because they 're trustworthy and they 're sincere and hard workers, or they 're great with their money and they 're not overspenders and they 're faithful giving to the church and all those things, and you see some people excel well in certain areas because it just seems to be something they're either fixated on. They maybe had a bad experience in the past and they said, if I'm ever given the opportunity, I'm going to be the exact opposite. Or maybe just some of the challenges that you and I have in some of those areas didn't show up in their life. I don't know what it is, but we're not all going to be perfect at all of those things. But the requirement for the under shepherds is still pretty steep. In other words, the leader won't be the best in everything, but he has to be demonstrating mastery in some of those areas. If he's not good in any of those areas, that's a problem. There's got to be some mastery in some of those areas, but a willingness and a track record of progress in all of those areas. And I'm just listing a few. Kind of repeating what many of the things that Paul had said in First Timothy. So that is what Peter is saying to the under shepherds. You must know your calling, the gifting that the spirit gives to those individuals will be evident to those around. And to extract the third point, I think that's coming from Peter's words here is in verse four, that the under shepherds must desire their Lord's glory above everything else. This is what he says in verse four. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter's not shy to say to the person who's laboring for the Lord. Hey, there's something in it for you. There's a benefit to you. There's a crown that's available and it won't fade away. He's he's not afraid to put the carrot at the end of the stick, but he's placing it in the right manner. He says when the chief shepherd appears, this is the reality that all of God's people, but in particular, the under shepherds need to understand is that we are managing somebody else's flock that what I say or what the elder team or other leaders in the church, what they say you are to do, or this is what the word of God says and everything. This isn't so that we can control you to our liking. You don't belong to us. You have a chief shepherd that you answer to. But the important thing is that the man of God would also understand that he is going to answer to that same chief shepherd who really, really loves his sheep and is jealous for them. This is what the writer of Hebrews said. To all of us in chapter 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Those that are eager to want the position of leadership need to see statements like this to understand that what they are willingly agreeing to is to be accountable for whether or not you led people astray or you took care of them. Under shepherds are managing somebody else's flock and he will return the best defense against the abuse of power that is so prevalent in ministry today is a responsibility to eternity. If I or those that serve with me or those that you appoint now and in the future have a clear grasp on the fact that this doesn't end with me, that this is going to be a thing that answers to a chief shepherd, you can have confidence that that person's got all the motivation they need to do a good job. If all I'm thinking about is what I can get away with with you, then, you know, I'm headed for trouble and the church would go through some great hard hardship. But if the under shepherds are understanding that when the chief shepherd appears that they want to have the motivation of being able to to hand the staff back to him and said, I, I did what you led me to do. I think I've kept them in your care and they are ready and willing to recognize your voice. They're going to follow your lead because that's what they've been doing all along. Then we've done our job. The key thing for every under shepherd to understand is that you won't please everyone. Everyone but you can please someone that chief shepherd. When he appears wants to be proud of the job that was done. He wants to see that things went smoothly Wants for that reunion with his sheep and wants to be able to give that unfading crown of glory, but you won't please everyone. In fact, once you head down that path, you're asking for a whole heap of trouble. I have heard this story several times. I was reminded of it this week and thought, you know what? That's actually really appropriate to what we're talking about. uh, There there was a, a man and a boy walking into town with a donkey, and these guys were walking alongside of the donkey. And as they came into town, the townspeople said, kind of a waste, isn't it? You got this beast of burden, and you're not taking advantage of it. Why wouldn't you use this to go for a ride? And that man was more of a people pleaser than he'd care to admit. And so their opinion really mattered to him. And he knew he he's going to the next town. So he doesn't want to be guilty of the same criticism. So he says, all right, I'll ride the donkey in. So he comes into town. The boy is next to the donkey and he's riding along all proud. Like they're going to love this. And what do they say? It seems kind of cruel. Don't you think? To make the boy walk. And you were riding the whole time on your, in your luxury and making that beast of burden carry you. So he's like, well, OK, and I didn't win that one. So the next town he goes into, he's got the boy riding the donkey while he's walking alongside. And they said, don't you think you're taking it pretty easy on this kid? I mean, kids have to earn their way. And they need some discipline and everything. You're just letting him ride free. Oh, OK, so we'll both ride this donkey. And so he goes into the next town and they look at him and said, don't you think that's unfair to the donkey? Both of you piled up on him, making him carry you. All right, so he moves on. And I think the last that anybody saw of him leaving town was with that donkey over his own shoulders. Still probably about ready to disappoint the people in the next town. We won't please everyone. But because there is a chief shepherd that will return because there is one who wants to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We know that we can please somebody. So every minister, every under shepherd, every elder, every overseer can can serve in accordance with Ephesians six, which says that we would serve with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not the way of eye service as people pleasers. But as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, it is in everyone to want to make somebody happy. I believe fundamentally man was created with this gap in their life because it would point towards the Lord God and they would worship him. But instead, because sin came in and we started getting our focus on ourselves and on how other people make us happy and serve our needs and all that stuff. We used this capacity and turned it into people pleasing. Some have a stronger issue with it than others. Some of you are like, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. And others of you know that you're crippled if you don't get a like on Facebook. It's just the way it goes. We all are a little messed up with this idea of people pleasing. And I would be lying to you if I didn't say I wanted you all to be happy with my performance or the performance of our team. We would all love that. But when that becomes the focus, when that becomes the obsession, everything starts getting squirrely out of wonk. And then you are not being fed. You're not being led. And then I lose everything I would want to keep anyway by trying to make everybody happy guarantees that it'll slip right through my fingers. Todd Bolsinger quoted in a book called Canoeing the Mountains, which I have not read yet, but I was having lunch with somebody and they loved the book and shared this quote. And I said, I'm going to steal that for the topic this weekend. Todd Bolsinger says, leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. I need to hear that. I don't want to disappoint you. But I need to be willing to at the rate that the Lord is allowing you to absorb it. And that's why your prayers are coveted and needed in this time. So Peter is saying that our future reward will have meaning. He says an unfading crown of glory. His mind is going to the Olympic Games in Athens. It's prevalent in the society that he's writing to. And they're used to seeing a crown that lasts about a week because it's made of parsley or something like that. And they give their all their efforts and they win the games like we would see now, you know, Olympic athletes, they dedicate that, you know, if they're going to be ready in four years, that means from this point on for the next four years, that's their life. That's all they're doing only to receive in Peter's time a wreath that will die in a week. Even if we're being honest, we think about our Olympic athletes and there are a few names that their names will endure for as long as we live, but there are only a few and they've given their lives to something that has given them great reward and they've gotten their accolades and some money and that sort of thing. And they've accomplished things, but the, the crown of glory does fade. Peter's saying that to live for the arrival of the chief shepherd Would prepare you to receive a crown of glory that would not fade. I I'm summing it up this way. Keeping a tight grip on the responsibility that you have the calling that you have, but a loose grip on human approval, which is admitted. We all want keeping a tight grip on responsibility, but a loose grip on human approval often results in both success and appreciation. Appreciation. Not always with everybody that you're hoping to win, not always at the moment that you want it, but eventually your efforts get noticed that as you become a responsible person who doesn't need your ego stroked all the time, people appreciate that about you. And as Peter wasn't shy to put a carrot at the end of the stick saying that you'll receive an unfading crown of glory, I think we should also be honest on a practical level that that thing that we crave, sometimes we get. That the Lord does give us that acknowledgement, does give us that human appreciation from time to time. But what matters most is that we don't live for the arrival of that. Instead, we live for the responsibility that's been given to us. So what is Peter saying to us? He's saying that getting leadership right is the key to the church's future health and growth. It is worth the time and the investment. It is worth identifying the guardrails that we need to have in place to listing the criteria, not the criteria so that we all know what we should be expecting of one another and and to protect that because it matters to the Lord as the chief shepherd. The process of building leadership, the process of training, the process of spreading leadership broad is very slow. It is messy. It's not always done with the human control that we like. I would love to be able to see things said or done differently that someone else has been given the responsibility to do. And you have to trust that the Lord is in that and he's going to see it through. And it isn't immediately attractive to those who don't see the process. There are times I am brought to tears in this church because I see development happening that you guys are like, I don't get it. And that's okay. It's not because you're ignorant. It's just because you're not in the same flow of what we're developing and i'm standing out back i'm seeing they're, they're kind of what, what you might think are like little things but i'm seeing things like things that show up differently with our technology or how someone's taking a lead in worship and someone's uh, moving over to kids ministry to do this and stuff like that and i see this massive progress and growth in what people are are doing and where they're spending their time and everything and i'm going this is what i wanted to be a part of this is amazing and it, and it fuels me. It fires me up. And I know that our leaders see the same thing and they see God doing a development thing here. It's slow growth. It takes a while to get off the ground, but it pays off. Building up strong, broad leadership shares the burden of responsibility, which is really helpful to me. It's really helpful to our staff. If more people like many hands make light work, that's really important. But it keeps the balance of power in check, which is so often infected by ego. It displays a diversity of gifts and styles. Someone's going to say or do something different than I would. And that's a benefit to the people. It endures longer. It brings health to the entire church, not just one area. I've only got a few things that I really am that passionate about. There's a lot of things that happen in the church that are a little bit like, you know, hey, you know, I'm glad that you're into it. I'm not really into that. But because there's good leadership in those areas and the Lord's given that to us to, to invest in, there's people that making sure that that's a success and that's good for all of us. I have this image of, of a movie where a guy went off and was only working one muscle. He ends up with this giant bicep and everything else is really weak and puny. That's what churches that's what can happen in churches. If all you hear is what I'm passionate about, and this is what we're going to do. And all of a sudden, just my thing becomes that one bicep. The under shepherd must have a personal growing relationship with Christ, a practical, gifted calling and a devotion to honoring Christ and him only. This is what Peter is saying to us. And the reason why he's saying it now on the heels of all of this uh, growing tension and fear and everything like that is because that's what filters down to the health and the strength of the church. Faith, I am telling you, there are days where I'm a little discouraged. I'm going to be honest with you. There are days where I'm going, okay, this doesn't look at all like what we used to have and used to take for granted and be luxurious. But I am telling you, I am more convinced now than ever that what we are building is biblical and what we're building is effective and that the rest of the, the environment around us and the people that don't know Jesus, they're going to see it. And we're not just building something they'll come to. We're building something that we're going to them with. I really do believe in the future of this church, and I'm not just saying this to be your cheerleader. I'm telling you, this is my calling. This is my passion. I am excited to do what I'm doing. Their staff is excited to do what they're doing. They're stepping up in so many different ways. We're building an eldership team here that I can't wait to put on display in our November meeting for our membership and things, and you'll be hearing more from them coming and going. It takes a while. It's a little bit behind the scenes, but the Lord is doing something amazing here. So let's hang on and let's be the church together and do this together. Amen. All right. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. I'm going to ask the worship team, come and lead us out. God, I want to thank you, Lord, for all that you do. Thank you, Lord, for a body of believers. I thank you for a family. I thank you for those that uh, join alongside and carry burdens together. I want to thank you, Lord, for those that are um, just faithful, even though their circumstances are dire or difficult. I pray you bless them, bless our friends at home, bless, bless those Lord that are not able to make it out yet, Lord. And we just um, want to maintain our connection with everybody, Lord. So in order to, to be the united uh, church that, green, that gives you glory, that brings you honor and praise, Lord, above all things, as we behold you, as we lift you up as the son of God, the Messiah that saved us. Lord, we want to be true to your name and true to our calling. Pray you continue to give your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.